It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. Rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the emperor's ultimate weapon, the Death Star. Pursued by the empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the sto stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. Do you know that iconic crawl, as they call it, when the letters of that preamble to Star Wars Episode 4 slowly go up the screen? That's kind of iconic for Star Wars, isn't it? The crawl before each movie that sets the stage of the conflict that is happening. Well, from that crawl, if you've seen that movie, you understand the problem that you're in. And after that, we're introduced to this cosmic war that is happening, this galactic war going on. Then we are introduced to a farm boy on Tatooine working on power converters who seems so, so far away from the problems of the galactic empire and the Death Star. Well, today we are going to see our own crawl, laying out a multinational battle for the life of a nation. And we're going to be introduced to a character who, like Luke, seems very distant from this conflict and being able to solve the problems that are going on around. What is your crawl? What would it be? What would slowly go up the screen? It is a period of civil war in the Jones family. Minivans are off to the annual family Thanksgiving. With Aunt Sarah's coronavirus conversations, Uncle Tom's political banter, will peace and freedom be restored to the galaxy and Thanksgiving? Seriously. What is the conflict that you are in? Where does there need to be restoration? Do you feel like you are very, very distant from solving these great battles and problems? And they seem enormous in our age. And we can seem very far off from being able to solve them at all. Maybe Nehemiah can give us some answers. I love narrative, and that's what we are reading, narrative. And narrative unfolds like a story, like Star Wars. And so we're going to take the narrative from Nehemiah in chunks. I'll be taking it in four different sections as I go on in the sermon. So let's start first with the crawl, the preamble, as we are set ourselves in where the conflict is and what it is as we're dropped in. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says chapter 2 in your worship guide. We're going to be just looking at chapter 1 right now. I'm going to look at chapter 2 later. If you don't have, you don't have that printed in your worship guide, so if you have Bibles, I encourage you to pull it out. Don't feel like you have to. Nehemiah chapter 1. 
The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeli. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. The word of the Lord. Were you just joining us? We are in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. I say it as one because it was one book in the Masoretic text and all the way until the 10th century. And then it was split in the 10th century between Ezra and Nehemiah. But we look at it as Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra and Nehemiah covers 100 years of Israelite history in the 5th and 4th century B.C. And specifically talking about the Israelites coming from their exile in Babylon back into the land in Jerusalem. And it's really split up into three sections. We've seen Ezra so far. Ezra 1 through 6 we went through. And we saw 40,000 of these exiles in Babylon return back to Jerusalem with a mission to rebuild the temple. It was very, very clear what they were called to do. And then we saw, 60 years later, Ezra 7 through 10, 5,000 of the exiles returned back to Jerusalem with Ezra, who was this priest, in the hopes to restore the people to the law. And now we are in the third cycle, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is written 13 years later after Ezra. That's the setting, 13 years later. We are in the summer home of the Persian king, Artaxerxes. Susa, which is located in western Iran. And here we have given, been given this character, Nehemiah, from his point of view. In the third cycle, it seems like the stakes and urgency in the trouble seem to be heightened. There's not 40,000 people coming back into the land to accomplish the goal. There's not 5,000 people like in Ezra, in Ezra 7 through 10, coming back to install the law. And here it seems the task is even greater. Not simply to rebuild the temple or install the law, but it's to rebuild the walls of the city where there is great adversity and danger. And what's even worse, we read in Ezra chapter 4, is that the king has already set a policy that they should not rebuild the wall. The support is less. Nehemiah doesn't go with 40,000 or 5,000. He goes with a few officials. And unlike the task of Zerubbabel in rebuilding the temple or Ezra in installing the law, the people knew what the task was to be. But here, Nehemiah keeps its secret of what this great task of rebuilding the wall should be to the people. It seems to be a great task, and the urgency is great. The problems are great. The people are in shame, as we have read. Nehemiah is hundreds of miles away from this problem. 
He's in a different kingdom. He's not even in Jerusalem. You wonder how can this great task be accomplished? Well, I think it starts first with Nehemiah asking the right questions. How are God's people doing? How are things going in Jerusalem, the dwelling place of Yahweh? And these are the questions he's asking. He cares about the Lord. He cares about the Lord's representatives to the world. He cares about God's presence. It's a good question for us as we look at this preamble of Nehemiah. How are God's representatives doing on earth right now? How are we doing? The Atlantic just published an article two weeks ago that said the evangelical church is breaking apart. We've seen survey after survey about church decline, fractures in churches about vaccines and how we should confront CRT or how we should move forward with this issue or that issue. There's talk in our country about civil war. What are we to do with this news? What are we to do with this weight that is happening in our country and in the church? When we might feel very far away from resolutions or what we can do, what steps should we take? Well, let's look, shall we? Let's look to see what Nehemiah does after hearing this awful news of what's happening in Jerusalem. The walls are down. People are in much shame. What does Nehemiah do? Let's look, verses 4 through 11. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting in praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and I keep my commandments and keep uh, my commandments I, and do them, though your, um, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will uh, gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. 
Well, there's five things that I see Nehemiah do right after the news. Number one is that he laments. He weeps and he mourns. And you see, he does it for days. But the truth is, we're going to read about it a little bit later, the sadness that he has still does not go away three months later. The first reaction of Nehemiah isn't what action steps I should take, what I should do. No, his first action is lament. How is our reaction to the state of brokenness around us? It's been a long couple of years. People have been sick. Many have died. People are angry. There's been much broken relationships during this time. I just was watching, just, you know, because I try to get away from it all the time, just watching the Aaron Rodgers, you know, drama. I mean, this is sports, right? And the vitriol that I hear people talk about this guy they don't even know personally on the news is crazy that you can just say this as a reporter or a, a, a newsman. You can just spew this about someone you don't even know. What is our reaction to all of this? Some of us are just numb. Some of us, maybe the reaction is just anger, ignoring it, running from it. Do we grieve this? Do we grieve the brokenness that we see around us? Do we lament what is happening in the church, what is happening in our nation? We're good Wisconsinites, aren't we? Just be nice. Don't complain about the weather. Don't complain about things that are hard. We are a tough people. But maybe we need to just lament and grieve what is happening. That is Nehemiah's first response to what is happening. Grief and mourning. And then it flips to a prayer, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He goes quickly in prayer to an adoration of God and his character. It's a very curious choice to go from lamenting and crying and mourning to go to the goodness of God and his power and his love. Why this choice? I think some of us, it's hard to realize the grip of nihilism in our current age. If you don't know what nihilism is, it's the idea that there is no meaning. I've noticed how much of America and much of us 
have responded to what's going on around us to say, whatever. It's just what it is. It's just what we have to bear. There's this laissez-faire attitude to death, to sickness, to talk of civil war. And you see what Nehemiah does. In the midst of the brokenness, he then inserts a prayer to a God who stands in contrast to the ugliness. In contrast to death. In contrast to suffering. In contrast to broken families. In contrast to sin. There is a God who has made a promise, a covenant with us that he loves us, that his steadfast love is with us, that he is one that he inserts himself into the mess. He laments, then he gives adoration to God, and then he confesses. He owns the problem of why Israel is in the circumstances that they're in. Why the walls are broken down. It's not foreign and separated from him. The reason that they're in such problems is because of their sin. And we've read about this in Ezra. How they were people that walked away from the Lord, pursued idols, married non-Israelites, and what happened was this sin allowed the other nations to come in and through God's judgment, the walls were torn down. Why is Nehemiah confessing this? He's a generation away from these choices. But even though he is a generation away from these choices, maybe not even born in Jerusalem when the walls fell, he still owns it. Even though he is separated, he still confesses sin of his people. It's very interesting how we separate the pandemic and death from who we are and what is really the cosmic battle that has occurred. How many of you say to your neighbor and your friends when they talk about what's going on with the pandemic, how many of you say, you know, that's the result of our sin. Did you know that? You know, your death and my death, which will occur at some point, is because of our sin and our separation from God and our rebellion from him. That is the grand story that we're in. That's the cosmic battle that is happening. The reason the pandemic is here ultimately is because it's not the way it's supposed to be. There has been a separation from God and his goodness and us humanity because of our sin. Oh, it's, it's not my problem. It's not my issue. Guess what? Your death and your sickness is your issue because you have been separated from God. Confess. This pandemic is our problem. 
Do I dare go further? These racial tensions in our nation, that's not my problem. That's generations before me. How dare you talk about corporate sin? Right here. I'm not making this up. Things, you know there's buzzwords I know that I can't say here or I'll just, it just told, you'll tune out right away. I know. If I said the word systematic, you would tune out. Systemic. Tune out. Okay, I'll use a better one. Corporate. How's that sound? Corporate sin. We are in the place that we are in because generations of sin that have occurred on this issue. Our church struggles. That's not us. We're okay. Right? We're not dealing with a lot of the problems these other churches are dealing with. Oh, but the pride, the covetousness, the search for power in the American church, we are all wrapped into this. I understand the issues that, and the pushback people talk about when they talk about corporate sin. It's not my issue. What am I supposed to confess? Here's the great thing about Nehemiah. He realizes that he is in a generation that he is also re reaping the benefits or the, the detriment of all that has come before him. He is confessing that sin, even of his fathers, but he's also not staying there. He also realizes, I have to do something about it. It's not nebulous, I'll just confess something, I don't do something about it. He actually then moves forward from it. There is words for wisdom on both sides where we might be on this issue. My words to my friends that are on the left that talk a lot about CRT and systematic racism and all of those issues or corporate sin, guess what? It doesn't let you just stay there. You actually have to do something personally. What is God calling you to do in that? To my friends that say, it's only my issue, it's no one else's issue, it's only what I'm dealing with, I say, you are caught in a time in an era of life that actually the sin of your fathers, the sin of others, is also you're wrapped into it. We are wrapped up into this as the church. So there is a pushback to both sides. Adoration, lament, adoration, confession, thankfulness. The next thing he does is he's quoting Deuteronomy, specifically the time when the calf was made when Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he comes back down and sees the idolatry that Israelites are going through and he pleads the Lord, Lord, please redeem them, save them. And we see that God was faithful to save the Israelites even though they walked away from him. And here, Nehemiah is reiterating the faithfulness and steadfast love of God, even in the midst of sin. And this is what then motivates him in that thankfulness of God's steadfast love and covenant promises to Israelites that he knows that God will provide again, even when the walls are broken in his circumstances. 
So he moves from adoration to confession to thankfulness to lastly to supplication, which is an asking of things. Saying, God, grant me success in this situation. And this is where the story gets interesting. We didn't realize who Nehemiah was. We didn't realize his position. But then you see the camera lens of the movie realizes the connection. It's where we realize Luke, right, is actually involved in this story greater than he realizes. And we realize that Nehemiah is closer to a solution that we knew in the beginning because he's a cupbearer. He has personal interactions to check whether it's poison or not in the cup to the king of kings, Artaxerxes, the head of the Persian Empire. And he's now praying to God, God, give mercy to me as I speak to this, not God, to this man, Artaxerxes. What do you do when the conflict is so great? What is the first reaction? Could you imagine if you watch Star Wars and after the, you read the crawl, the pan from the stars goes down to what? Someone praying. That would be boring, wouldn't it? But that's where he says the work is being done. The first thing is prayer. You want to change systems? You want to change the complex problem of our age? You want to solve all of these issues that we're seeing? You've got to realize there is no way to untangle the wicked web we are in by ourselves. It takes a God to see those situations and undo generations upon generations of sin and problems. How dare we think we are the ones that can solve it individually? If you've been around Christianity enough, you realize the acronym that I've just solved, right? You've been around Christianity enough? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, acts. Something, if you've been in the church, it's something to do. It's a great thing. I use it in my prayer life. These are the steps I go through in my, my time with the Lord. I adore his character and who he is. I confess my sins. I give thankfulness to who he is and what he has done in my life. And then supplication. Here are my requests. David, of course, picked a great quote for the front of the worship guide, C.S. Lewis quote. That's really good. Really like it, David. Prayer, in the sense of petition, asking for things, is a small part of it. Confession and penitence are its threshold. Adoration, its sanctuary. The presence and vision and enjoyment of God, its bread and wine. C.S. Lewis. Okay, well, it's kind of boring, though. There's not much action. What's going to happen, right? You just don't stay in that state. It keeps going. And I, actually, it's probably a good thing you didn't get chapter two in your worship guide, so now you can find out what happens, right? What's going to happen, okay? Chapter two. Let's read, shall we? Let's hear about how the battle is going to be won. So in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, 
And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Okay. You got to realize what's happening here. Okay. So you realize that when you are in the presence of Artaxerxes, the king of kings, it's not about you. It's about pleasing him. So I don't know how long Nehemiah had served at the king, but he had not seen him sad at all during that time. Could you imagine having a smiley face at work all the time for your boss? That is the kind of fear that he lived in being around King Artaxerxes. He could not be sad. He had to show a good face. We've read in Esther and other places how quick the king of, kings of Persia got rid of people. Like that. You're dead. You're gone. And even a sad face could mean you are dead. This is three months that transpired since hearing this news, and he, he just finally can't get away with not showing his sadness. You know what I love about this book is the contrast between the king of Persia and God and Yahweh. We've seen this constantly through the book. That God is even more powerful than the Persian king. That he even guides what the Persian kings do. He is sovereign over those things. But you, what you also see in Ezra and Nehemiah about Yahweh is not just his sovereignty over all choices that everyone makes, but also that he is more loving and gracious than any earthly king. What did Nehemiah do to, to God when he heard the news? Did he have a smiley face? No. He cried and mourned in front of the Lord. He was able to reveal all of himself to his God. And he was also able to give his requests to God unabashedly. Isn't that a beautiful picture of our God? That he wants to hear from us whatever emotion that we have, no matter what feeling we have, he wants to hear from us. He's not like a bad boss. He wants to know what we're going through. What a contrast. But here we are. Nehemiah is going with it. With this king Artaxerxes. And the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is the famous arrow prayer. You know, he's been praying for a long time. But right now, here's the moment. Boom, God, here I go. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, 
that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Listen, okay, how, like, it's hard because some of us have read the story and we know the ending and all those things. And you might be bored by it, by, but like, get in the midst of the story. This king kills people at a drop. This is a cupbearer to the king. And the king has already put a policy in place saying that he will not rebuild the wall. And here, this Israelite cupbearer in front of the king of kings is now asking that he would be the one to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls when the king said that they should not. This is suspense moment, right? Are you on the edge of your seats? You should all be at the edge of your seats, right? What's going to happen? And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, oh, this is just, it gets better. If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Amazing. That Nehemiah asks, and it, he asks even more, and his requests are granted. Why? Because the good hand of God was on him. Please hear me, church. The Lord wants to use us in the restoration and revelation of his kingdom to this world. Nehemiah did not stand by these past three months and just pray without thinking about a plan. No, he thought about it. And when the time came to strike, he stepped up. I love Lord of the Rings. And I, when I read this, I think about the picture of Bilbo in the Shire. And uh, you have, right, it's in the Shire. What's the Elvish kingdom called? Yeah, Elrond. Yeah, that, that's where he is. And he's, you remember, he, the ring is on that stump in the middle, and the elves are fighting about it, and men are fighting about it, and the dwarves are fighting about it, and they're all talking about who is going to take the ring to Mordor, right? Frodo, Frodo, I meant Frodo, not Bilbo, Frodo. Aaron corrects me on my Lord of the Rings, which is good. Frodo. So Frodo's there. And they're all fighting about it, right? And what does Frodo say? I will. I will. 
I'm with 10 guys in Praxis. We're having a good time doing a book, Designing Your Life. And I think it's kind of audacious to even read a book that says design your life, right, as a Christian. Because God designs our life. Like he's in control of all things, right? How dare we think about how we want maybe our life to go. But here's the thing. God does care about our desires for his kingdom. And I challenged the guys this le- last week in an email, and I'll challenge them again today. I'll challenge myself. It's okay to write down, God, this is, this is what I want. This is what, how you could use me for the extension of your kingdom and what's broken in this world. Use me. And when the time comes, the opportunity is there, we can strike and move forward and have a plan how he might use us. Church, next week, you have an opportunity as we sit around in tables to give your thoughts of what we do as a church. Be in prayer and strike. Say, this is what God has put on my heart. That's what we're here for, church. We are representative of the king. We are ambassadors to this royal mess that's all around us, that God is using us to work in this world. Let's do something. Well, it goes on, and and, uh, Nehemiah goes into the land, and the first thing he does is he doesn't tell the people his plan. Instead, he just surveys what's going on around the wall. He goes from the north side of the wall to the west side to the south side. And then it says he goes to the east side of the wall. And he has to get off his animal, whether it's a donkey or horse, because he can't even walk around it because it's such a mess and rubble. It's actually in 1961, uh, archaeologists actually surveyed that part and found those ruins from what had happened at the first temple destruction. And that is where Nehemiah is seeing what has gone on with the wall. And he has not told the officials, the people, the priests of Jerusalem what he wants to do. But then, after surveying the wall and taking time, verse 17, chapter 17, um, chapter 2. He says to the people, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Here, Nehemiah is trying to give motivation to all these people about this grand plan. And he gives a couple things of motivation. One, that we should be no longer in shame among the nations. That we should be a light. And second, he says, God is with us. And I have news from the king to do this. And the people respond and they said, 
Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. How do I motivate you? What if I told you it's our plan, it's our plan, my plan, that we'd buy all the land around the church, right? That we would build this ginormous building here. And God said we should, right? What if I said that? You'd go, whatever, right? But what if I told you you know the bill that was just passed by Congress? I've got my connections. And guess what I got in the bill? And President Biden to buy off on. They're giving us $100 million earmarked to Emmaus Road Church, $100 million, to make that plan happen. What would you say? Let's do it. We got $100 million. Let's make it happen. Silly, right? But what if I told you that there's a greater king than Artaxerxes? A greater president, a greater person than anyone in Congress that's behind us, that we are ambassadors for his kingdom to go and make disciples. What if I told you that king was behind us? And he's already shown the way for us. He's gone to the cross and defeated death. And he said, I have restored this broken world and I have ushered in a new kingdom that you can be a part of. Did you know we were in the paper this week? Did you know that? This building was in the Post Crescent this week. Now, I'm not trying to throw any shade to the Post Crescent or to our city officials. I've gotten together in the time. I have friendships with them. But when we talk about churches in downtown Appleton, city planners don't really like churches. <laughs> we don't pay taxes. We're not in their grand plans of city planning. What claim does a church have in a secular city? Yeah, when churches grow and they have progress, they just go to the suburbs. Do you know there's a major plan for this neighborhood? For where we are right now? A grand plan. It's called the North College Street Plan. $30 million library to be built right there. This parking lot to be a place to house people from low income and income adjusted. And also other parking lots that would house many, many more people. What should we do? Oh, what's going to happen to our parking? <laughs> How are we going to have classrooms for all the kids? What about our grand plan of being big? The Lord is with us in this place as the people come to us, as the city comes to us. 
What an opportunity for us to go. We are not afraid. We are here for the city. We are here for this place. We are here for the people that move in there, for the people that are library there, for people that are coming to this part of the neighborhood and that the city officials would come to us and they would say, I am so glad Emmaus Road was there. I'm so glad. My good friend Clint and I, it's, it was our birthdays, and we celebrate our birthdays together every year. And uh, we were enjoying some ice cream in front of a nice fire, this one nice place. And there was a lady that was sitting next to us, and she was reading uh, a Christian book. And, you know, we struck up a conversation with her. And I felt bad after I struck up the conversation to her. She says, I'm, you know, reading some scripture and reading these books. I have four young children. I run my own business. I'm from a small town in Wisconsin. And this is really the time I have in front of this fire to read this book. I'm tired. I need a break, right? She wasn't shaming us. She's just explaining where she was in life, her crawl. And we're listening and talking. And she starts talking about the current age. And I'm ready for it, right? When we talk about the current situation. I'm ready for her to tell me about her problem with masks. Talk about politics. I mean, she's a Christian. I'm ready for her to talk about the end of the world and how we need to hunker down. I'm ready for that. I'm just bracing myself for these conversations. She knew we were Christians knew I was a pastor. And she looked at me and she said, don't we live in a great age? What a great opportunity we have. This tired woman with four young children under the age of seven running her own business. She was saying to me, a pastor, what a great opportunity we live in. I'm so excited. She was Nehemiah. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And here, this tired mom made me want to go, let us rise up and build. Church, the hand of God is upon you for good. The words of the king have been spoken. Here is my body. Here is my flesh. So that you may have life. Rise up and be a part of my great kingdom, my church.